Hello, Duncan Green here with the weekly roundup of posts on from poverty to power. I've uh, I've been marking student essays all week, uh, and my brain has turned to jelly. So I'm not sure if I'm going to be able to string more than a couple of sentences together. But we'll give it a go. I have to say, marking is great. I mean, the essays, some of them are absolutely fascinating. The level of concentration. I can only compare to actually writing a book. It's really, you have to really, really focus for hours and hours and hours on uh, wading through 70 essays of different on different topics about change. Um, so uh, I'm feeling fairly knackered and looking forward to the weekend. Anyway, only three posts this week because we had a bank holiday. I'm not sure why we have holidays for banks, but we had a bank holiday in the UK and I went to visit my old mum who I hadn't seen since October. She's in a care home over on the west of England and it was lovely to be able to see her, hug her, kiss her. You know, it was just really nice. So that's what I did on Monday instead of posting blogs. But then I got back to business as usual on Tuesday and I'll start there. So first of all was links I liked. <clears throat> and there's been a, a sort of growing crescendo of announcements and interest in this whole question of a TRIPS waiver. This is that um, COVID medicines, like all pharmaceutical products, um, are uh, often uh, released under patents. And those patents stop rival companies from uh, replicating them. Um, and uh, there's been a big fuss about TRIPS, as they're called, intellectual property rights, going back almost since the creation of the WTO when TRIPS, the inclusion of intellectual property rights as a as a, as a trade rule issue was one of the big changes uh, in the creation of the WTO. So in the early 2000s, there was an enormous punch up about um, the fact that the intellectual property rules were preventing poor people getting access to HIV AIDS medicines. And there's a real sense of deja vu that we're having the same thing again. Um, lots of really interesting stuff happening so a big campaign people's vaccine my boss danny shriskandaraja appeared and was really hard hitting on the bbc question time program um allied to i mean there's a very nice phrase from ranil disanayake at the center for global development right now every single place approaching normality is guilty of a massive moral failure so that moral failure is we're getting the vaccinations, we're getting back to normal, what's happening in the rest of the world, look what's happening in India. And that's playing into this whole discussion about intellectual property. Even Trevor Noah um, supports the idea of a waiver on, trip, on intellectual property rights for COVID vaccines. So that was, like, that was in links I liked then this week, and I'll be writing about this next week, or getting someone to write about it. Um, it started to bear fruit. So the Biden administration came out in favour of scrapping uh, of, of, of overriding trips, uh, intellectual property rights. The Netherlands, Bill Gates, very important. The Gates Foundation has been a big defender of trips over the years. But Germany is opposed. I don't think the UK has come out in favour. So it's still everything to play for. Fascinating campaign um, and a big deal, really a big deal in terms of not uh, both how we respond to the COVID pandemic and how we deal with the uh, fact that these vaccines uh, need to be got out to poor people. They're often produced with massive amounts of public investment, and then patents mean that they are created for private profit. You know, some of those pharmaceutical companies have made billions already from COVID, and that just doesn't feel right. Then the only other thing I had on the, the that I wanted to talk about on the links I liked was a really funny. Uh, there's a website called PhDComics.com, 
which if you're in academia or on the fringes of academia like I am, is, often has really funny stuff. And this had a kind of deconstructed academic rejection letter. And it got me thinking a bit, you know, academia has this very weird um, part of ritualized humiliation, which I haven't really seen in other, maybe in maybe in the the city, maybe in banking, I don't know, but there's something where in academia you put yourself through a series of humiliating experiences and that just seems perfectly normal. So getting rejection letters from nine out of ten of the papers you submit to journals in order to get your tenure or your, you know, your brownie points, um, getting taken down in brutal seminars by your supposed fellow, your colleagues and peers. You know, there's a whole series of things which are actually really unpleasant. Um, and it does make you wonder quite why academia has ended up in that place. But anyway, the, the rejection letter is very funny because it kind of says what, what a rejection letter actually says compared to what it nominally says in terms of the text. Second post of the week was um, one that really got my attention. I got, a, got an email from a friend called Scott Guggenheim, who um, is the sort of father of community-driven development at the World Bank. He lives in Indonesia. And he has a he wanted to publish a post with a, uh, written with a woman called Christina Zittel on something about the use of drones in community driven development. And that really that may have really got my attention because I associate CDD, community driven development, with, you know, people sitting on the floor making pictures with sticks and pebbles and bits of string, not some sort of high tech drone thing. In fact, they seem totally antithetical. So I was very interested in this. Um, so. What um, Christina and Scott did was give a series of examples, which was I thought were really interesting. So I'll give you some of those. So in Indonesia, the Pulse Lab Jakarta PL, PLI produced drone-based maps to identify clear legalized village boundaries, which are critical in Indonesia to access funds for development under the village law. In Malawi, drone mapping was used to facilitate an adequate cholera response through community discussion, problem identification and local action. The best uses of, of, of this technology, Earth Observation, EO technology, are when inputs gained from community communities address subtle context-specific issues using drones. In West Java, farmers identified patchy rice fields stemming from uneven fertilizer distribution, and drones were used to enable them to automate fertilizer applications to improve output, quality, and income for small farmers. They can be tools for environmental and social justice. So in Kalimantan, logging, palm oil and gold mining companies and conservation programs are banging up against forest communities. So um, a bunch of people help the communities to use drones to get high resolution uh, geo-referenced maps. And then they can shove those into the hands of uh, uh, planning boards who are considering allowing yet more foreign investment and saying, actually, this land is not empty. Look, we live here and we've got the proof. Um, similarly, in, in, in Peru, drones were able to map an oil spill, which ended up um, being used uh, in legal action. They can be used in anti-corruption. So the classic anti, yeah, the classic corruption story is a government uh, gives a private company a load of money to build a road and they never build it. Well, drones can come and say, OK, are people on site? Is the road being built? You know, so actually drones can help with anti-corruption monitoring. Service delivery. So in Ghana, drones are used to deliver and pick up COVID tests. Natural resource management, you know, mapping ground surface water and water. So there's a hell of a lot of things it can, they can be used for. But what about the key issue for me, which is power? Yeah. And, then, and, and, and 
Um, I would have liked more on this, but Christina and Scott did recognize that the temptation to use low cost remote sensing to replace, not complement, more traditional forms of inclusive participatory facilitation is a, pro is, is a threat. And I'm glad that they recognize that. What you don't want is people to say, oh, we don't have to have all those messy meetings. Let's just send a drone over and shortcut everything. The maps they produce tend to be small and digitally printed. And if you're showing those to a village, you'll just get the, you know, the main men all crowded around the map and disabled people, women, other groups, you know, on the margins, not able to see anything. Whereas in traditional CDD, you have great big maps, which everybody can take part in. Um, and some communities have very negative associations uh, with drones, not surprisingly with things like warfare or interestingly witchcraft, although she doesn't explain quite um, what the link to witchcraft is. So really interesting piece. Uh, I'd like to hear more about this because I'm always skeptical about tech fixes, but this one looks quite interesting. So um, if anybody else has got anything interesting to say, let me know. And then the third and final post of the week was um, the latest in a series I've done for the LSE on trying to find out the impact of the research being carried out in the center I'm part of, the Center for Public Authority in International Development, which is basically looking at how power operates in these very messy places called fragile and conflict-affected settings like the Congo and Somalia and places like that. Um, and in this one, I talked to um, one of the CPAID star researchers, Melissa Parker, who's a medical anthropologist who has made her reputation, of, among other things, looking at Ebola in Sierra Leone. Um, and it's really, you know, when anthropologists go places, they find out stuff no one else sees. They sit around, they talk to people, they listen. They don't just sort of see what they, they expect to see. They're always fascinated by anything a bit unusual or, or, or unexpected. So after the 2014-16 outbreak of, of Ebola in Sierra Leone, Melissa and her team of national and international researchers spent time in the villages trying to work out how public authorities, these kind of, um, the kind of groups that people on the ground trust and respect and obey, which is not always the state or the people with guns, it can be all sorts of different people, um, how the public authorities shaped the responses to Ebola. And they found some really interesting stuff. I'll read out a little bit, I would say published in The Lancet. We found that people with signs of Ebola virus infection had been taken deep into the forest where relatives would do their best to keep them hydrated. Those who died were buried in hidden places. Those who performed burials were all members of one of the numerous secret societies that are pervasive across the region. Now, those, this, is, this is amazing stuff because the secret societies are not on the radar of the Sierra Leonean government, still less the aid sector. And the recovery rates in these places deep in the forest were actually better than in the multi-billion dollar aid treatment centers. Um, and, and this stuff was so hidden that it wasn't even known to the paramount chief, the, the, the formal chief uh, in the area. It was all done below even his radar. So really interesting stuff. But that's not actually why I was talking to her. I've had that stuff from her on the blog about that in the past. But I was trying to talk about how does this affect the impact? You know, what's the impact of all this research? And it was really hard to get down to because, first of all, like many sort of quite 
you know, eminent researchers. She gets funded by loads of people. She works on loads of topics. She works in big, complex teams. Um, and it's very hard to tie a particular impact to one piece of research. What you want if you're justifying your you know, research funding is to say to the funder, look, this bit of research led to this bit of policy. And that's actually really difficult when you've got big names involved. And secondly, a lot of the impact she's had is actually based on work done before she joined CPAID. Yeah, you, you acquire a reputation as a researcher as your career develops and you get asked to be on committees or to give your opinion and expert opinions and those sort of things. And it's cumulative. So again, very hard to tie to a particular bit of research. It's a bit, you know, it's, it's, it's very hard. Um, what she did find was that you know the field work in Sierra Leone then led to publication in a very sort of you know, respectable journal the medical journal of medical anthropology and that led to invitations to attend some sage the, the UK government's scientific advisory group on emergencies sage fantastic name whoever thought of that total genius um, and she was initially invited to discuss um, Ebola and you know subsequent um, uh, outbreaks of Ebola uh, in, in the DRC. But then when you come to the current pandemic, that means that Sage knew of her and actually she was invited to um, be part of a, one with an even better name, Spy B, the uh, UK government's scientific pandemic insights group on behaviours, looking at how people actually behave in pandemics rather than assuming that they're you know, in, entirely rational. And similarly, um, one of her Sierra Leonean uh, partners on the research, Lawrence Babao, is now on his country's national COVID task force. So interesting, it gets them on into interesting places. So, of course, I then asked Melissa about her theory of change. You know, I always talk about theories of change. And what she said was quite interesting and very deliberate. We use the academic articles to legitimise a kind of authority to get a seat at the table. Social scientists don't usually have a voice there and we are trying to create a space alongside the medical and logistical voices. So that's a really interesting sort of nuanced um, view of how academic research can have impact and it's not linear and it's not simple but it's really important and really interesting. And on that note I will say goodbye. Have a great weekend. I'll be back next week. Bye.